Welcome to Arc Reactions Podcast. My name is John. My name is Dylan. And this is episode 151, covering Wonder Woman 1984, the film. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. If you're new to the show, we will be talking about things we didn't like, followed by things we did like, and finally giving the movie an overall rating. So Dylan, why don't you start and tell us something that you did not like from this film? You know, there, there's quite a few. Uh, real quick, I just want to say that I am so glad to be back in the proverbial chair. It's been a hot minute with this whole pandemic thing. Yeah, uh, we finally broke down and we're like, okay, we're going to try and do this remotely since we still can't be in the same room together. But hopefully in the next few months, we'll be able to get the vaccine and be able to resume normal operations in the same room. Yeah, ideally. Um, so I guess for my first one, uh, if we're just going to go chronologically, so as I was watching this with my wife, I was like taking notes in a little notepad app. So, uh, you know, I'll just start from the top, which is why is the intro so long? Um, this is a like, what, 15 minute intro. And the theme, the, the whole theme is you can't cheat to get what you want, uh, which I guess kind of plays to the theme of the movie. But like, how much more obtuse could you get with it? I mean, yeah, they did pay it off right at the very end with her um, basically re- repeating what uh, which which Amazonian was that that was uh, scolding her? Is that Ant- Antiope? Maybe Antiope. Um, anyway, yeah, it, it comes back around at the end. Um, actually, I was watching it with uh, Larissa, and that was the only part there. The part she liked the best was the opening scene because it it's the only part on Themyscira. It's Diana is a child like it felt like it was there to bridge you from the first movie to this movie I think um I really enjoyed that sequence but you're right it is quite long for then 90% of the rest of the film to not relate back to it in any way whatsoever yeah I'm not I'm not saying necessarily that it's a bad sequence like it is enjoyable uh and it's really good action sequence but yeah the whole this is a you know, a, a film that is two and a half hours long and you have this much time dedicated to that is just silly. I mean, there, we can we can continue off of that and just talk about how ridiculously long this movie was. Yeah, perfectly, yeah. Um, I mean, Endgame earned the three hours it was because it was a culmination of like 23 movies and it needed to be that long. This was a sequel it does not need to be two and a half hours long it was entirely too long with every that you could probably trim every scene by like 15 to 30 seconds and get this thing down to to around two hours and not really lose anything i mean like uh, another scene where they're flying in a uh, jet steve is modern flying in a modern jet which i'll get to in a little bit um but that fire's fireworks scene where they're just flying through the sky and into the fireworks cloud which is extremely dangerous why was what what effect did that have on the movie what what was the running theme of steve flying through fireworks and diana being impressed by and steve being impressed by how pretty the fireworks were yeah i yeah i don't know i mean was that supposed to be just more of the this is they're really in love and you know the we just have to show how in love they are and look at all the pretty colors and they're having such a great time. Like, was was that the point? Because, yeah, I, I was also kind of baffled by that whole scene of like, why wouldn't you why wouldn't you get higher or fly around or do like, yeah, it's dangerous. Th- those are little explosions of <laughs> of color like that could damage the plane. <laughs> Seriously, like there's no 
it, it, it's just it, the entire scene is like the entire lead up scene to that also doesn't make sense. But I'll, I have that written down as a separate point too. Oh, um, we can we can go into that. Like, oh, okay, first of all, how does Diana have access to the jet? Well, I, so we, it's a deception one. So we're led to believe that she has access to the jet. But as soon as they get into the jet and turn it on, like sirens go off. It's like, so you're basically stealing a jet, Diana. Okay, great. And then, but also, like, how did she have access to get to where the jet is? Like, she just flashed the card, got access to the the jet and the runway. What? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, because she works <laughs> at the Smithsonian. Like, I don't think that gives you access to classified areas or at least not very many of them maybe like that warehouse in indiana jones or something but like <laughs> not not a uh a, an airfield with a bunch of of fighter planes just sitting on it which was that a russian plane i don't know i didn't catch if it was or not like i, I yeah it's been a it's been about a week since i watched it and I, my initial impression was oh is that a mig and i'm like that's interesting and then they, they it didn't do anything later on. It was just just a way for them to get to Egypt for the next the next scene. But um, I, let's not forget the invisible jet thing too. Y- yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I was leading to. We'll come back to this more later. Um, I I did enjoy that they made a reference to the invisible jet. I thought it was kind of interesting how they did it. And then of course by the end of the movie, it's become irrelevant. So it was it was kind of a like. Hey, we know she used to have an invisible jet. We didn't forget about that. Here, you get a taste of it. Are you happy? And I'm like, that was really a strange like sequence. Like, yeah. was it the only purpose just so that they weren't chased on their way to Egypt? Because it seemed like the authorities or the people running the base were going to like scramble jets to chase after them, and then all of a sudden, because it disappears, which don't get me started on how it could disappear from radar when it's just physically invisible. There's a whole separate thing about those <laughs> planes that are invisible to radar. They're not physically invisible. It's the radar is absorbed by the paint or something like that, or or uh, mostly absorbed, something like that, to hide them from the way radar works. So, yeah, it, it was it was a chaotic, strange unnecessary scene in so many ways like there was so many other ways she could have got them to egypt that would have been probably better seriously um yeah no the the whole the whole thing was just so weird and and like at least generally speaking when marvel does a easter egg it is something one it's subtle and two it's like it doesn't have a major impact on the plot but with this, it's like, oh, Marvel, it, it very much feels, I, I don't want to compare this film to uh, Suicide Squad per se, but it's very much like that effect where uh, Guardians of the Galaxy used like 80s pop rock and stuff, and uh, it was very successful. So DC's like, oh, well, that's clearly the key to success, so we're just going to do that for Suicide Squad, even though it, you know, they did it extremely poorly. It almost, it almost feels akin to that. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that... It was unusual, um, and I I can't even name a Marvel equivalent of that because nothing of that. See, yeah, I guess what you were saying kind of is the most sense of like them putting in some like the the Luke Cage um, yellow shirt and 
and Tiara reference in in I think it was season one of Luke Cage, like super yeah. subtly done. Like if you didn't know that was his costume, or same thing with uh, um, Jessica Jones and the jewel. Was that what it was? Yeah, jewel. Um, yeah, like this was not that. No, not in any way. Yeah. So and and then how is Steve able to fly a modern jet? Like, okay, I can give that one a a pass because. Well, I, honestly, I have no idea what a World War One plane looks like. He was able to fly a World War One plane, so I understand. I, I'm taking that as he understands the physics required to make a plane go off the ground into the air, stay in the air, and not crash. So he just is looking around for things that are kind of similar and pushing buttons and gets it right. Like I can almost give that a break, but I, I understand what you're saying. I think the more frustrating thing is something i saw in in your notes because you sent them to me was his his unbelievable fascination with everything that is more modern than when he died because i think you said like the subway fascinates him but the subway did exist before he died yeah 1904 was the first subway in new york planes exist like in 19 14 to 1918 whatever year that was in world war one yeah there are quite a bit different between a a, a biplane or a you know a prop plane and a jet but the the concept is the same it's just modernized so yeah that that was i think the more strange thing than him like adjusting to slightly or maybe not slightly but different controls and being able to adapt to a, a modern plane like I'll give him a pass on that one. I won't give him a pass on on just how really surprised he is by things that he probably had seen once or twice just modernized. Oh yeah. So, I've been I've been leading the conversation on these negatives. What negatives do you have? Um I I have many more, but like So my first thing I wrote down was the wishing stone cuz I I was like that's going to be a negative and then they managed to win me over with that. Like um, and I think that might be one of our good points is what they did with that and how it related to the villain. I I have mixed thoughts on that. But just that she wished. I, I, I think I'm in agreement with you on that. I think I'm also with the the missed thought or the mixed thoughts because when it was like, oh, that's how they're bringing Steve back is a wish. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> I think the thing I'm mo- most weirded out by that is he didn't just come back like materialize he took over someone's body yes like another person's body and they they go through this whole thing about him like looking in the mirror and in the mirror you see the other person's body but when they're shooting him you see uh chris evans chris evans no chris pine Chris Pine. the other chris yeah one of the chris's um you see the actor chris pine when you're just looking at the camera's just looking at him, but when he sees a reflection, he sees the, the other actor, the guy's body that he took over. And of course, Diana is like, can tell it's him, but it's doesn't really look like him. And so she's just seeing him. And then for the rest of the movie, we just see Chris Pine. I, I get it. But like the ethics of, yeah, that's what, that's what I'm, I'm like, what the, like, what was, what was with this guy? Was he in a coma? Was he just a living his every day? Like, he shows up at the end of the movie. Am I right? Yeah, he does. Diana runs into him at the end of the movie and it's, it's, there's no reference to, Oh man, like I, I was in a coma for like a month and I'm glad to be alive or, or something like that. Like there's no reference to 
why this was the body that Steve inhabited, or even the fact that he had someone inhabit his body and he had a, a lost amount of time. Like, that is just really, really, really weird to me and disturbing. And the whole ethics of, like, this sentient person being taken out to have, you know, Steve inhabit his body and Diane is doing stuff with him. You know, like, that's, I don't know, the efficacy of that is just really, really weird. Yeah, yeah, there, there's a whole lot of, of like, meat there for a um, philosopher or, or ethics professor or something like that to, like, write a, write a good uh, uh, paper on or something. God, that was just such a weird choice. Yeah, very much so. I want to move on to uh, Minerva. Okay, yeah. First of all, the villain is a nerd who spills paper and is ignored trope. Yeah, I I saw somebody post that uh, as well before I, before I saw the movie, and I'm like, oh, that's what we're getting for uh, for Cheetah. Okay, and then when it happened, I'm like, oh yeah. If I if I hadn't already seen this, I would have thought the same thing. I was like, this is uh, Edward Nigma all over again, or or something very close. The god awful uh, Electro from that Spider Man movie. What that we don't talk about. Oh man, yeah, I didn't even remember that. And then all Minerva does is put on some leggings, and now everybody's fawning over her. Well, I mean, it's it's obviously the stone, which brings yeah. up the, the next question. So the first two wishes we see in this are hers and Diana's, and we see what Diana gives up, which is her powers, essentially, to have Steve back, or like they're slowly disappearing. But what did Barbara give up? I, I still am, after the whole movie, not entirely sure what, what it was that the stone took from her to give her basically a, a copy of, of Wonder Woman's powers. I mean, first of all, the, the general idea of the whole monkey's paw concept for a film is that it, takes, it, it gives you your wish, but, but it, you lose something. It, right. Like the original play, and this is – I watched a, uh, a Wisecrack video on this. So I'm, you know, pulling from that information. I watched it after I watched the movie, obviously. I was going to say, I haven't got to that video yet, but I know which one you're talking about. I have, I, I have it queued up. Yeah, so it's like the man wishes for 200 pound sterling and his son dies in a factory accident and the company pays him 200 pounds. He wishes for his son to come back and his son comes back as a zombie. There is a direct, immediate response, like, relating to the wish. This is right. just, like, completely unhinged this is oh uh you want to have your your boyfriend back i'm taking your superpowers because those are related you want to become as as first of all barbara is just wishes to be as popular and pretty etc etc as diana knowing nothing about wonder woman so she gets wonder woman's powers so is that is that the negative like no but she then she loses her humanity at which which is not related I, I don't see that as from the stone. I see that as from her reaction to getting attention and and powers of she didn't want to let it go. I didn't see that as anything to do with the stone taking away her humanity. That was all her decisions. So, yeah, and that leads to even more muddying of the water in so much as what did she give up? She made two wishes. She made, I wish to be a, like Diana, and then she's, I wish to be an apex predator. So well, what? okay. I, I um, so the second part of that I don't feel like was an actual wish, because um, the son made his first wish, and it happened, 
And then at the end, when the the TV thing is going on and everyone's making their wishes, the son makes another wish and it doesn't happen. So he had his one. So sure, her one wish was to be like Diana, and that's what she got. the The second thing about an apex predator was him changing her. I don't really know the the mechanics behind it, but it wasn't due to her wish. It was just him him doing it because you'll notice that disappeared, but the rest of it didn't when he renounced his wish because she didn't renounce her wish. Well, and that's the thing is she wished upon the stone and then she wished upon Pedro Pascal. Yes. So that it, this is another thing where it's muddying the water where it doesn't really go into the whole, the the function and, and, and like the, the rules of the universe. Right. Because see, I was watching Diana because my thought of how this was going to, um, well, obviously, I was watching the film, so of course I was watching her. But at the end, when she's trying to get him to renounce his wish, and he's got he's you know broadcasting everywhere, I'm like, oh, is she going to wish for the stone back? Like I kind of thought that was how it was going to end. Was she was going to because now he is the the stone? Does she get another wish because it's changed enough, and she's going to wish for the stone and get the stone back and then destroy the stone, and that's how it's going to end. But that's not what happened. So I, I take it that because she made her wish on the stone before Maxwell Lord merged with the stone, that, that she's done. She doesn't get another wish, even when he's letting everyone in the world do, that can see him do do their wish at, at the end. For real. Like, it's just such a muddied, muddled, like, they already took the concept and went way off base with it, and then they just kept going. Yeah, I, I this... This script could definitely have used um, a, a few more um, continuity-focused uh, re- revisions, I think. Yeah, seriously. So I have several more, but do you have any others that you wanted to talk about? Um, okay, so this one bothered me probably a, f- a fair bit. At the very beginning, well, not the very beginning because that's the Themyscira thing, but the, the next scene after that that we get where Diana is stopping a robbery um, in in the mall, she takes out the cameras with her tiara, and I'm like, okay, she's trying to maintain, you know, like a low profile secret identity type thing. That's the only time in the film where she cares about a secret identity. Like, I was expecting her to be wearing glasses in the Smithsonian, or or something to, you know, the the Clark Kent disguise, if nothing else. And yet, she just is wearing clothes instead of her Wonder Woman outfit. That is the only difference between. Diana Prince, if that's her last name in this instance, I can't even remember. It is. And okay. And Wonder Woman is what clothes she's wearing. That's the only difference. And it's pretty obvious that at least two or three different people know that she is Wonder Woman as well as Diana. Like uh Barbara Minerva knows, Maxwell Lord knows, and I can't remember if there was somebody else later in the film, but like it's pretty obvious that you are Wonder Woman. It is. It it, it doesn't take uh, a uh, Batman level detective to figure that out. Like you're not hiding it well. Well, and and that goes to another point I I wanted to bring up is that if they had done the glasses, it would have just cemented to me that oh they're making this they're really going for the uh, female Superman angle of the original Wonder Woman. You know now she can fly on her own, which is I think a power she gets eventually in the comic book uh so depending on the version of wonder woman is yes so the i think the most current one can fly without any assistance so 
I wasn't surprised they went that way by the end. I was rather surprised that it was basically the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy approach to flying, which is Steve says, oh, I just feel the air and the wind and just kind of float or something like that. And do you know the Hitchhiker's Guide uh, definition of flying? Uh, throwing yourself towards the ground and missing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, really, really, we're doing that. We're doing the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy version of flying here, which is Steve says something semi-poetic about it, and somehow you can take that and then learn how to fly. Seriously. Also, her ability to lasso clouds, I guess. Oh, God. Uh, I didn't see clouds. I didn't see clouds, but I saw lightning. <laughs> Which makes no physics sense whatsoever. Like, I will give you that the lasso is sort of magic because they are definitely basing this uh, character quite a bit in the mythology magic realm. Like, looking at, you know, Ares and the worshipping of the gods and, and all that all that stuff from the first movie. And then in here, you've got the wishing stone uh, with powered by some god who I did not recognize when they said the name um that's not a mythology i'm familiar with and and such so i will give them that the lasso can is sort of got a mind of its own or obeys the thoughts of the person wielding it and can you know expand and contract but there is just no physics way that you can lasso lightning it's it's just not there long enough to to be an anchor point well and it's last it's lassoing lightning in a you know, non-lightning cloud. I, I mean, I'm not a a scientist of any stretch or measure, so maybe there's in a, inert lightning in clouds because of the friction between, like, the raindrops and ha- what have you, but... I, I mean, I know there's a lot of more air-to-air lightning that we're just not aware of than, you know, air-to-ground lightning, but, yeah, I, I don't know enough meteorology to know if that type of cloud was appropriate to have lightning coming out of it or not, but that lightning went kind of at a... I don't know, it could have been a a cloud to cloud or it was a really like 45 degree angle kind of thing. So like if it was going to the ground, it was not going straight to the ground. I I have another thing on the lasso and it ties into another point. Um, It's the the whole Diana monologue scene at the uh, towards the end. Yeah, how, that how did it get through the 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 swirling winds? Like, I get what the swirling winds are because we saw anytime he granted a single wish, a, a, a gust of wind. So the swirling winds is because he's granting a bunch of wishes at once. I I'm I'm okay with that part, but that the lasso can't get through a bit of wind just that that seemed kind of lame. It can't get through a bit of wind until it gets through a bit of wind off camera. Right, exactly. Between the panels, basically. I, I'll take. I'm taking that as kind of a. Um, they liked what they did in Justice League, where she had secretly lassoed Aquaman, and he's just talking, revealing things, and doesn't know he's lassoed. Like, I I saw the parallels there, but having you having like less than a, a couple minutes before shown us that she's trying to get through and can't, and then all of a sudden it happens without anyone noticing yeah. that that doesn't that doesn't work for me and and uh, to go back to the the bigger point which you, you touched on already the whole monologue thing the, the as far as i can tell the only way for him to have been communicating uh pedro pascal's uh, max lord uh is through the camera yet somehow he's she can hear him or she can talk through not only the swirling wind, which anybody who's been in like a wind tunnel or high wind area knows like, no, in fact, 
uh, Shazam did a phenomenal job making fun of that trope when uh, the the main character, the main bad guy, were up in the sky, and like the the bad guy was monologuing, and Shazam was like, "I, I can't hear you, dude. You're too far away. There's wind." I don't... It was hilarious. Phenomenal film. Highly recommend. But like, yeah, this is like, I, I don't understand that that entire scene just doesn't make much of any sense to me whatsoever. Okay, I, I'll take a I'll take a shot at it. Okay, um, I'm not I'm not saying I'm going to convince you because I'm not entirely convinced myself. <laughs> Fair. Uh, but so earlier in the scene, someone, I'm thinking Wonder Woman, throws the camera and it gets knocked over on its side. Okay. Pressure got smashed, but yeah. It, 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 whether it's non, completely non-functional or not, it got knocked on its side and like slung across the room. So it's still there in the room, potentially. Still possibly broadcasting picture and sound, potentially. But it's way far away from because he gets off of that stage and goes somewhere else and is like standing in like a tube with all the wind floating around him. So they're really far away from that camera. And she is kind of at a low volume talking. So like, I don't even know if Max could hear her, but because the lasso was attached to his ankle, somehow all that is going out to the world. And also all the screens grow glow bright yellow. So I don't know about the bright yellow and I I'm putting things together that maybe possibly, although not very likely the camera was still picking up sound and that's how the world could hear Diana. But it was awfully distinct and loud for where the camera was relative to where she was and where Max was and what the lasso was doing. So that's my best effort to explain that, but I'm not really buying it. <laughs> it, it even like your explanation it feels like a massive stretch and you're trying by god are you putting forth the college try um but it's just yeah th- th- there was a lot of decisions with this movie that were certainly decisions yes um s- related to this scene but not related to the what we were just talking about is i mean they set up the the gold armor obviously at earlier on in the in the story steve sees it and asks about it and so we get the history of of uh artemis no uh it, it was a weird name and it was i mean it's one of my good points yeah uh you, so i know you have the name written down so you'll you'll fill it in when when you see it um anyway he, she's telling the story of the gold armor and the amazon who wore it and defended them so they could retreat and build the mascara and so we're like okay they've set up the the gold armor and then the lassoing lightning scene is going on uh, I think she's chasing the following the helicopter that has Maxwell Lord as he's headed to wherever this communications uh, base is, right? So I think she's following the helicopter. Then all of a sudden she hears something or, or something clicks in her mind and she's like, oh, I need to go get the gold armor. And so she makes a whatever turn, not really sure what direction she was going or where her apartment was from that, goes back to her apartment, gets the armor and then is immediately at the communications facility, like right after that. I mean, I get we don't have to see her traveling between the two spots, but one, how did she know where that was? If if she was if she was following the the helicopter, which is what I was assuming, then she was following it to see where they were going. Did she follow it far enough to like see it start to land? Then realize she needed the armor, go back and get it, and then go back to the spot where she saw them land. Like that is just really unclear to me. I I think it goes back to something we say a lot when we discuss movies is show not tell. 
I mean, this just did neither. It's like we're just going to go for the neither angle. I, I yeah. I mean, they kind of set up the gold armor instead of just. Oh, look! It's female Goldar. You mean uh, Gal Goldar versus Cats twenty nineteen is the climactic battle? Yes, I, I I laughed really hard when 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 we figured that out uh, the other day of Gal Goldart. <laughs> Gal Goldart and Cats twenty nineteen. Yeah, yeah, I I hadn't put that one together until I saw it in your notes, and I'm like, mm, okay. I mean, I'm not going to watch that movie. No, you, me you, either. You can't you can't make me. No, uh-uh. no, no. I I wouldn't I wouldn't dare because that would mean I would have to uh, uh, eat the crow myself, and uh, no, not trying to do that. But cats do eat crows. <laughs> Damn it, John. <laughs> Oh, uh, so the, I, I came up with this the other day. Well, uh, collectively, me and me and uh, and housemate came up with this. So, do you know why they don't allow uh, dogs and cats to just give birth on the side of the road? Why is that? Because they'd be picked up for littering. John, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that kneecaps are a privilege, not a right. Yours <laughs> are going to be revoked. This came up because the housemate was saying like, oh, you know, when a when a goat is giving birth, it's called kidding because they're having a kid because that's what a baby goat is called. And I'm like, it's seriously called kidding? He's like, yeah, it's called kidding. So, I mean, so we were like, does that mean when a dog gives birth, it's called littering? I, I, I will be over uh, in a bit to collect your kneecaps. Uh, <laughs> please have them ready for me. Um, you... Anyway, back, back to the movie. <laughs> you have lost privileges. Uh, so, uh, so the next one I have, uh, is of course Diana isn't one of those is of course Diana is one of those I don't own a TV types followed by why I thought Diana says she doesn't have a TV she has like twelve okay based on like one of the first things we talked about with the opening scene and how like the truth is so important in this movie I can't reconcile this but I thought she was just lying to him because she didn't want to deal with him trying to get her a TV fair and and. That leads to another point, but uh, I want to get through the end of this one. I mean, if that's the case, then fair. But, like, it's just such a weird, like, why? Why is that a a line, you know? Why why is that even a thing that's included in the movie if it's just going to be ignored? I I have an idea, but um, I'll come back to it if, if you have more bad things to talk about. If not, I can transition into my good point. I do have a few more bad things to talk okay. about. Okay, I'll, I'll come back to it. Then. Uh, it's gonna. This is where it gets like serious and and pretty sad, um, as far as the bad points go. Uh, so first of all, is there's so much cat calling in this movie. Like I understand it's supposed to be depicting the '80s, but there is so much cat calling, and only one guy gets his comeuppance. I mean, he, at least he gets the tar beat out of him. But like, there's just so much cat calling and. And harassment of women in this film, and, which of course happened, of course is horrible, but it just seems like such a weird decision to have it so prevalent. Of course, then again, you know, I'm male presenting, I'm not someone who's ever had to deal with catcalling, so I, I guess it makes sense that it exists as it does it depicted this movie to really drive home the point. I, I, ha- I, I don't want to uh, misrepresent this, but... Uh, I did see something. So I watched a documentary the other day called You Don't Know Me about showgirls, which is a really strange movie. I do not necessarily recommend you watch it, but if you have seen it, you'll probably follow along with this. So there's a a scene in there where um, 
Nomi's friend gets assaulted, like graphically assaulted. Um, and she gets mad. And so she goes and like, like roughs up the guy who did it. And, um, there was some reviewer or someone in the documentary that was saying like, what was the point of this scene? Like, was this to show men like that this is not something you should be doing because it certainly doesn't do anything for women. Women are aware of that and know that, that, you know, that's a, a, a risk or a danger. Like it, it's doing nothing for, for women. And other than, you know, it, it, it's potentially glorifying these acts in, in, in your movie. And I kind of feel like it's to a much lesser extent than in the movie Showgirls. the the same thing here where it's like, what was the point of this? Like, was it just to show that this is what the culture was like in the eighties? Like, was it to be a, a lesson? Like is the lesson we're, we're taking from this that, you know, women should stand up for themselves and beat the tar out of people that, that do these things. Like, I mean, I don't disagree with it, but yeah, it's, 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 it's such a, I, and I, I, to a degree, I can also understand because it's not supposed to be comfortable because women are made to be uncomfortable it by existing. And especially during this time, you know, it was super prevalent and not uncommon. This time, meaning the time the movie is 1984, yeah, not, yeah. Yeah. But like, it's, it's, it just seems like it wasn't addressed to a degree that's satisfying. Like the one guy who was harassing uh, Barbara Minerva, you know, gets the tar beat out of him, but he is the one guy. We see Diane getting constantly hit on. We see Diana getting constantly, you know, flirted with, unwelcome or unprompted. So what's the... You know, I don't know. It just—it seems like it's out of place, or at least it doesn't go far enough to justify its existence in the film. And if we are supposed to like feel good about that guy getting his comeuppance from Minerva, I—that's a mixed message because we're—I feel like at that point we're supposed to be seeing her decline and loss of humanity, like that she's nearly going to kill this guy and only stops because the. Um, guy that she had she would bring food to periodically shows up and asks her what's going on and is like surprised at what she was doing to this guy that's like the only thing that that breaks her out of potentially killing that guy and then she's extremely cold and at, to the guy that she was you know kind to and it's just like that's such a quick scene that it doesn't it doesn't carry the emotional weight that I think it really needed to to show that change uh, I, I feel like I got enough of Barbara's change out of that, and I, that's what I think we were supposed to get. But I have a hard time feeling good about him getting his comeuppance when it comes from someone who's deteriorating into basically uh, to being a, a, an unre- potentially unredeemable villain. Yeah, I don't know. That that's just weird, uh, and I don't. I'm I'm conflicted because I want to be happy that someone. In, in that time period, he's being a jerk, gets his comeuppance, but it's at the cost of what should be a very, you know, what what should be a, a good person who works in the Smithsonian turning into, you know, a, the, the cheetah a villain. Yeah. Um, the other one, this is where it gets really serious. Uh, 
the horrific depiction of uh, Arabic people, the stereotypes, the it's just the depiction of Arabic people is extremely racist in this. Uh, the the one guy, the uh, oil the, um, Amir, Lord. yeah, yeah. Amir, the oil guy. Uh, I want to get the heathens off of my like. This is just pure horrifying, like racist stereotyping, especially considering. Uh, Gal Gadot's history with the ISF, and I'm going to touch on that in a second. Yeah, I, I, I want to thank you for sending me the articles for that because that one did kind of go over my head. Like, uh, I knew that she had a his, she was Israeli and she did serve in their um, conscripted service uh, in some form or fashion, but I did not put any of that together with this movie and, and the depictions until those articles that you sent me. And yeah, I, after reading those articles, I I can't unsee how poorly things were handled regarding Egypt, the Emir. Um, there's a like a throwaway uh, in the the whirlwind of wishes, a throwaway uh, two seconds of an Arab man wishing for nuclear weapons that I think was highlighted in one of those articles. Yeah, the uh, it looks like a Taliban fighter or you know other. Uh, an Arabic man or an Arabic looking man in a cave with a machine gun. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to this when we get to the good points. I know I said that about the, the other thing too. It's just, I think I see what they were trying to do and I don't think they achieved it. I'd love to hear what you think they're trying to do, but we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. Said. Yes. And then the other one I have is the kids. This relates directly to that is the kids playing soccer. I get almost getting hit by a rocket scene. Um, the ISF, fired a missile that killed a, bu- uh, a bunch of Gaza kids who were playing soccer on a soccer field. Um, this was an operation which, I, the name escapes me right this second, but it's a operation which uh, Gal Gadot has tweeted support of a few times. So uh, it's just the fact that he, it's irreparably connected, and anytime Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman uh, does anything on screen that relates back to Palestine or any Arabic uh, people or countries, it's going to be extremely like under a microscope and she cannot be unaware of that. No one, you can't be that unaware of that connection. Okay. I can, I can step in with a, a couple details. I also cannot remember the name of the operation, but it was in 2014. Yes. Cause I remember the article said, it, it showed an Instagram post of hers from 2014 expressing support of the operation. And then um, I believe it was on a beach that the, the kids were playing soccer, if I'm remembering the article correctly. But location doesn't matter. The fits the fact that a missile killed four kids playing soccer. And what I think... So Gal Gadot was a producer on this, so I'm assuming she had quite a bit of input into the the final product of the film that came out. And what I think what I think was trying to happen was they were trying to address that and say, we've improved. Look, we can prevent this from happening. That's my best effort as trying to spin it in a positive light of like, she's like, if I was wonder woman, I could have deflected that missile and saved those kids. Like that's honestly the best I can do to try and, figure out why that scene is so closely resembling what happened in reality in 2014. Exactly. Like it's just, 
it, it's extremely tasteless and I cannot, you know, I, I had to say something. I had to do the scholarly research on it because it, it struck a chord. And yeah, it's it's really, really bad. After learning that, it, it really taints that scene because uh, there was one thing in that scene that didn't really make sense to me, but I think it's because her powers are waning is that she's kind of stuck between the two vehicles and can't push one away. But I think that was because her powers were waning still at that point. But I mean it's a good action scene if you don't have the context, but if you have the context, it's kind of gross. Yeah. It's a, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's the best word for it is gross. All so right. That, that's, that's Dylan's rant on the depressing part of the podcast there. <laughs> I, I think I'm ready to get into what good things we could pull from this film. How about okay. you? I've got about four points. Uh, actually it's more like two or three points, but, uh, go ahead. Not to keep the audience waiting, because I know I've deferred like two things I wanted to say. Um, let me get to w- what I think they were trying to do, what I like about it, and how I feel like they didn't succeed. Okay, so this film had a number of various homage things in it that I saw as well as, as uh, Larissa when when we were watching this, which is the flying around on the lasso was very Spider-Man-esque. Um, you know, lasso the the building and swing and then lasso the lightning and swing and the plane and and such. Um, I noticed when the rock has disappeared and Maxwell Lord has gotten it and Wonder Woman's trying to track it down that the movie for me took a very Indiana Jones slash Tomb Raider vibe of, oh, there's this artifact and... we have to go keep it out of the hands of the bad guys and figure out what it does and that sort of thing. And I was like, oh, that that's interesting. And then the setting is 1984. So what I think they were trying to do was I think they were trying to recreate movie tones from the 80s and 90s. Okay. So Indiana Jones is, you know, 80s. Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man was late 90s. But basically the the tone of pre-Marvel Studios superhero films. So like the the Burton and Shoemaker Batmans, um, the, the who made the 99 Spider-Man, Sam Raimi Spider-Man, um, that sort of thing. I think they were trying for that tone because the, and like the mall scene seems very much like the kind of the Shoemaker Batmans to me, you know, very colorful and, you know, props and, and gadgets and stuff like that. Like so, I I think that's what they were trying to do, and then of course we uh, we mentioned the 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 catcalling and and the assault that that uh, drunk person tried to do to to Barbara, and then of course the the superhero not in costume saves this person they were just talking to. Uh, that that also seems like very much from that that era, you you know, and and so I think they were trying to besides setting the movie in the eighties, make the tone of the movie reminiscent of movies of that era, if that makes sense. But what I don't, I don't think they succeeded because one, those movies were not that long. Those movies, those superhero movies were an hour and a half, maybe up to two hours max. And this was two and a half hours. Um, So I like the idea of trying to, set these Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman films in a specific era across 
a variety of time. Like the first one was World War One, and this one was 84, and the third one could be, I don't know, 95 or something like that. You know, like various time periods and then make the movie reminiscent of that time period. I like that idea. I just don't think they, they succeeded at it. Yeah, I could see that. So that that was my primary good good point because I know you're going to bring up one that I agree with you on. Uh, the Pedro Pascal, like, just chewing scenery like a madman and really working, like, the Trump angle of the character. Yeah, the Maxwell Lord... Um, the what the way he became the villain Maxwell Lord and not just the failed businessman Maxwell Lord and then what he did with it I thought that was fantastic and I I thought it worked fabulously for for the movie just it 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 was really long it, yeah I mean it, it, given that we we know the the movie was way bloated runtime but I mean Pascal like I mean you you notice the little things like him fixing his hair, you know, and just like his mannerisms were so Trumpy. And it was, it was almost like, you know, because of his accent and the way that he uh, looks, it was almost like a, someone trying to model themselves after Trump and got Pascal just did such a great job with it. And like, he's just one, he's always such a pleasure to watch. Honestly, obviously he was in Mandalorian uh, and he's, we both love that series. Yes, definitely enjoying the Mandalorian. Oh yeah, um, and of course he was also the Game of one Thrones. of the yeah one of the people from Dorne in Game of Thrones. Yeah, he was the prince of Dorne. His yeah. name escapes me because it's been a little while, but right, yeah. I'm just, it's I'm not bringing it to mind either. What I what I liked about the about the the villain portion of this was up until the point where they just decided, oh, he can fix this himself. The rock, the wishing stone, when he merged with it, it sort of changed him a little, a little bit in a in a very compulsive way, and I really liked that. It was like, oh, what what can you wish for? And like he specifically went to certain people, but then he would also just go up to random people sometimes and be like, what do you truly wish for? It's like he would he had to keep fulfilling wishes. That that I really enjoyed, and then you can see that it is taking a toll on his health. Like first he starts uh, bleeding from the nose, I believe. And then there's some bleeding from the ears later. And then you see like a purple vein or, or some sort of mark on his, on his face. Um, uh, but then at a certain point he just wishes to take somebody's health or he chooses his monkey's paw thing from the person to be taking their health in relation to the wish. And all of a sudden it, that's not an issue anymore. So up until that point, I thought that was really well done for for the the villain. Oh yeah, I, I love the take on the power. Um, it's just a it is an extremely unique way of going about it. Having him wish to be the the monkey's paw in essence. Yeah, no, and, and and yeah, the whole like self fixing it is weird. But I do agree. I love the idea of like he he now has this compulsion to grant wishes, and he has the willpower to weaponize that. And like that just made such an interesting and cool character choice and power choice, yeah. And, and especially considering it's set in the you know, greed is good eighties. Um, oh yeah, I didn't even think about the Wall Street connection, but yeah, yeah, there is definitely a, and I, I mean the movie, but also the place. Um, but I was thinking more of the movie, just yeah, the the kind of like 
the first thing he does is set up his like oil empire, you know, and yeah. And then he expands from there. So yeah, like I really, really enjoyed that take on the on the pretty, you know, well worn trope. Yeah, I I hundred percent agree with you. Like Pedro was the star of, of the movie in my opinion. And the last good thing I have is the Linda Carter Asteria cameo. There we go. It's Asteria, not yeah. Artemis. It was I was it, like, it I was, know you had it written down somewhere. Yeah. It was just an absolute delight. Um of course it's Linda Carter. She's amazing. And the cameo, the nod was just so funny and so hype. Yeah, I liked it. I, I thought, oh, that's cool. Like I, I love that Wonder or Wonder Woman. Uh Linda Carter is embracing um anytime someone wants her to participate in the modern superhero craze that is because she played the the president on uh, supergirl as well yes like she's not playing wonder woman in any of these she's playing different characters but she just wants to be a part of it and i think that that's great it's nice to see her uh not reprising roles but taking on new roles in in these these genre continuing Um, to remain relevant and impactful in the current universe and that's paying uh paying its dues as it were to the the shoulders upon which it stands right exactly i i am a little confused as to how she survived but i mean if if all we're gonna see is is that little cameo then i'm not gonna bother trying to figure it out oh yeah i mean i'm just waiting for adam west to show up in uh Oh wait, no. Adam West passed away. Twenty seventeen. Never mind. Damn. CGI Adam West to show up in uh, the Ben Affleck Batman movie. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, I, I, for, I forget what I read something about some former person with a connection to Batman who might be in that movie, but now I can't remember what it was. Uh, you're talking about the Matt Reeves the Batman movie. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't Maybe, it? Uh, it's not Burt Ward. How about Burt Ward makes an appearance? It's not Ben Affleck anymore, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, no, it's a uh, Robin Pattinson. Yeah. Which I I know everyone's gonna say, oh Twilight, Twilight. Look at Beyond Twilight for that man's acting. It is amazing. That that man can. Oh, if you haven't watched uh, The Lighthouse, oh my God, he just he is so good. It is a great movie. That is a really weird movie, um, but it has two phenomenal actors in it because it's also got Willem Dafoe. Yes, legends. It, that was really cool seeing uh, Linda Carter as Asteria there at the the, the little tag at the end. Uh, you have any other good points you want to talk about, brother? No, I, I think we've uh, talked this movie to death a little bit. I think the movie talked itself to death. <laughs> All right. Uh, why don't you start with a final thoughts and a rating there, Dylan? This was not what I had hoped it would be. Um, between the the bloated time, runtime, the weird plot incongruencies, the a lot of the decisions made, and historical revisionism, as we discussed, it just it, it was not fun. It had fun bits, but overall, it was just it was a a lot of decisions made that were not the best decisions that could have fit the situation. I really hope going forward they can rectify some of the weird decisions. I know this film is getting pretty, not slammed, but not well-received online in in general. So hopefully they can right the ship. But uh, 
Yeah, overall, I have to give it a 4 out of 10. Uh, lassos of somehow get, being able to get through wind tunnels despite not having been able to get through wind tunnels mere minutes before. Okay. Um, I, I was afraid I might have to uh, break the, the rules here and, and be higher than you, but I think I'm okay with being equal with you. I'll take it. <laughs> well, this to me, after I finished watching this movie, I was like, that was a- average. Like, just average. Like, it's too long. There's so many things that how many things did I have to go through mental gymnastics to try and figure out? <laughs> like three or four at minimum. Yeah, and that was to try and figure out. I'm not even sure I succeeded on all of them. It's just... I want to chalk it up to the weirdness that has been the last year, but I feel like a lot of this was done before that, so I don't know if that even applies. But it's it's just an average movie. Like I watched it once... I'm good with that. I probably won't watch it again. Um, uh, as you said, Pedro Pascal's performance was incredible as as Maxwell Lord and just like stole the show. Like I was rather disappointed with the cheetah portrayal. Like, oh, that was the other thing I forgot to mention in the um, setting it in the 80s and 90s. The need two villains for no reason whatsoever. But just to have two villains, like how many of those movies had two villains, whether they needed it or not, you know, like the, the, the first Batman was just Joker, but the three after that, the second Burton and the two shoemakers each had two and one had three villains in it that their plans weren't necessarily tied together. Some of them were, but not, not all of them. So yeah, just like, I see what they were trying to do with the, Let's have fun with this being said in 1984. Like we can throw in these tropes of the 80s. Like, oh, I think there's a point at which Steve is looking at a bunch of punk kids with like the oh um, yeah super super long spi- Liberty Spike terror and and you know leather jackets with uh, with spikes on it and the uh, big boombox and all that. And it's like that at times they were having fun and then other times they were trying to be really serious with it or have a message like that whole scene with the missile i think and it's just it's a it's a weird mismatch it's entirely too long it had some good elements but not enough to make it more than just an average superhero film and that's a really a disappointment when we'd had some good movies from dc like just before this you know you brought up shazam i would say aquaman and um birds of birds of prey yeah the uh the latest harley quinn movie which I think is called Birds of Prey. I, I don't know. Yeah, Birds of uh, Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harleen Quinzel. Yeah, it has such a weird. Well, I mean, speaking of weird titles, this thing's listed as WW84 and Wonder Woman 1984. Like, yeah. I don't even think they say Wonder Woman 1984 in the film. It just says WW84. Yeah. A, anyway, it, it's a whole like Edge of Tomorrow. Uh, Live, die, repeat. Yeah, exactly. That, that <laughs> one. It's like it was called Edge of Tomorrow, but the, all the marketing called it Live, Die, Repeat or something like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm in exact agreement with you. For uh, soon, seen chewing nosebleeds from Pedro Pascal uh, out of ten. <laughs> so what did you think? What are your opinions? What did we miss? What did we get right? You can email us at arcreactionpod at gmail dot com. You can lasso your way over to our Facebook page and leave a comment, facebook.com slash arcreactionspodcast. 
get in your invisible jet and tweet at us at ArcReactionsPod. Please don't tweet and fly. Please don't do that. <laughs> you can tumble our way, which is what will happen if you try and tweet and fly, at ArcReactionsPodcast.tumblr.com. You can find the show on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, and more. And once again, a big thank you to Packy for our intro and outro music. And uh, next episode is going to be, speaking of The Mandalorian, Season 2 of The Mandalorian coming so on good. February 14th. Yeah, that was really good. All right. Thanks so much for listening. This has been a cat interrupted production.